0: John's Gospel, John chapter 7, uh, page 1230, page 1230 in the Pew Bible, John chapter 7, beginning at verse 53 and reading through uh, chapter 8, verse 11. John chapter 7, verse 53, and everyone went to his own house. But Jesus Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, Let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then also reading from John's Gospel a little earlier, one verse from chapter 3, verse 17, on page 1223, John three seventeen. For God did not send His Son into the world, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. As far the reading of God's word. Beloved of the Lord, if you know your Old Testament history, you know that when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land, it took a while. They were in the desert for a time. And at one point the people were afflicted with poisonous serpents biting them as an affliction from God to discipline them because of their sins. And to remedy the situation, Moses crafted a bronze serpent and raised it up on a pole. And anyone who looked at the bronze serpent was healed. Of course, that's mentioned in the New Testament as a sign of looking to Jesus to be healed of our deadly affliction that has come about through the serpent uh, Satan. Well, that bronze serpent was preserved for many generations. But when Hezekiah became king in Jerusalem, one of the first things that he did was to break in pieces the bronze serpent. He broke it in pieces. He destroyed it. Why would Hezekiah destroy this sacred object? Well, because the people had begun to bring offerings to it. It had become a holy relic. And it had uh, become itself the object of worship, which was idolatry. And to prevent such idolatry, he destroyed the bronze serpent. Well, what Hezekiah did for uh, the bronze serpent, God himself has done for us with regard to the original texts of the scriptures. We confess that the scriptures are infallible and inerrant in the autographer, and the word autographa means. Uh, the copy that came from the hand of uh, the inspired writer. Uh, the apostles in particular, uh, Paul, you know, signed his autograph on the letters that he sent out. Those original documents, God in his providence has seen not to preserve because he knows our tendency to uh, elevate holy relics, to uh, items of superstition and even veneration or worship. Uh, Indeed, uh, a great part of Christendom is afflicted with uh, uh, enough splinters of the cross of Jesus to build a whole cathedral that people are... uh, Venerating, even worshiping holy relics, whether it's shrouds uh, that supposedly encased uh, Jesus' body in his burial or the bones of saints or splinters of wood from the cross or all kinds of holy relics that people try to hold on to. But nobody has the autographer from the New Testament. We have only copies. And, of course, copyists make mistakes. And uh, those mistakes generally are very minor a letter, a word uh, uh, missing or added uh, a name spelled differently, which really isn't a mistake because there was no universal uh, rule for spelling names uh, in the first century or for many centuries afterward or even today in some instances. Uh, and uh, so we have these uh, differences in the manuscripts, but we have thousands of manuscripts. And by comparing thousands of manuscripts we're able to arrive at 99.9% certainty that we have the words from the autographer, even though we don't have the autographer. But there are a couple of passages that uh, are still in doubt, and one of them is before us today. Uh, the 12 verses beginning with... Chapter 7, verse 53, the last verse of chapter 7, and the first 11 verses of uh, chapter 8 are uh, a passage uh, that isn't found in all the ancient manuscripts. It's found in one group, but not in another group. Uh, there's one other passage like this, the last 12 verses of Mark's gospel, and then there are two verses in First uh, John chapter 5, and those three uh, selections. Those three places are the only place in the New Testament where uh, there's uncertainty as to whether or not this should be included in the New Testament. Uh, thankfully, there is no doctrine of the faith that is dependent upon those three passages and uh, whether they are included or not will not change anything we know about Jesus or about uh, how to be saved by Jesus and uh, what God's will for our life is. And therefore, God, uh, since God has uh, himself created this situation by not preserving the autography in his providence, we have to accept this as uh, the price that we pay to be spared, the uh, temptation to worship pieces of paper. And uh, uh, God uh, knows what's best for us, and we accept that. I'm not an expert on textual uh, studies, but I, I do like what John Calvin said about this passage. He says, quote, it is plain enough. Uh, let me stop and say uh, he talks about two groups of uh, texts in here. The, the, the manuscripts from the Greek churches and the manuscripts from the Latin churches or the Western churches. He says it is plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches and some conjecture that it has been brought from some other place and inserted here. But as it has always been received by the Latin churches and is found in many old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of apostolic spirit, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. No reason to refuse to apply it to our advantage. Nothing that contradicts the apostolic spirit, and it has been received by many churches down through the ages and uh, been used well of God. Therefore, we should not be afraid to use it as well. But in case there are any here who think, well, maybe it ought not to be included, I have chosen uh, John 3:17. As my primary text, Jesus came not to to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. As my text and this passage as illustrative of the meaning of that text. So with that in mind, let us look now at John chapter eight, the first 11 verses and see what's going on here. And the first thing that we need to take note of is that this is an attempt on the life of Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees have brought a woman taken in adultery as a way of trying to find some way to discredit Jesus and get rid of Jesus. We read at the beginning of chapter 7 that uh, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, wanted to kill Jesus. And later on in chapter 7, the scribes and Pharisees send soldiers to arrest Jesus and the soldiers come back empty handed and say, wow, nobody ever spoke like this man. Uh, they were deeply impressed and, and couldn't bring upon themselves to carry out the orders of the scribes and Pharisees to arrest Jesus. So the scribes and Pharisees are now left to themselves to try to manufacture some reason to condemn Jesus. And so they have uh, found this woman. Now, uh, how did this uh, scheme work? Well, they knew that Jesus was a friend of sinners, that he had spent time with uh, uh, drunkards and tax collectors and prostitutes, and that he uh, dealt graciously with them. And uh, we can presume that they hoped that that's what Jesus would do on this occasion as well, that they would bring this woman caught in adultery and to Jesus, and Jesus would have compassion on her and not condemn her and uh, let her go. Well, if Jesus did that, they would immediately pounce on him as contradicting Moses, because Moses says that those who are taken in adultery uh, must be stoned. And uh, it's a capital offense, And they could say, well, then if you want to let this woman go, you don't believe Moses. And if you're contradicting Moses, you're guilty of blasphemy. And blasphemy is a capital crime. And therefore, we can put you to death for contradicting Moses. Uh, That was their hope. However, there was the off chance that Jesus would not have compassion on her and would say, yes, take her out and stone her. And if. The crowd took her out and stoned her because Jesus said to do it. Well, then Jesus was in trouble again because the Jews did not have authority on their own to put anyone to death. The Romans ruled... Uh, They were subject to Roman law, and Roman law was that the Jews were allowed to settle certain things according to their own law and uh, to administer discipline according to their own law and punishment according to their own law, but they were never allowed to put anyone to death. The Romans reserved that authority for themselves. If the Jews wanted someone put to death, they had asked the Romans for permission to do so. You recall that that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Uh, The scribes and Pharisees had their little trial. They condemned Jesus of blasphemy uh, on the the night that he was betrayed. And uh, then they, in the morning, went to Pontius Pilate to petition for the right to put Jesus to death. Well, they were hoping now that Jesus would take matters into his own hands And and if he didn't show compassion, if he did say condemn her, uh, she ought to be stoned. And all of a sudden there was a mob that uh, stoned her. They could blame Jesus for it and go to Pilate and say, look, he's uh, usurped Roman law. He's rebelled against Rome. He's guilty of treason against Rome and treason against Rome is a capital crime. It's worthy of death. And so they could ask uh, Pilate to put him to death because he incited a a stoning of an adulterous woman. So they thought they had him in a no-win situation. If he showed compassion, he would be contradicting Moses. Contradicting Moses is blasphemy. Blasphemy is worthy of death. Uh, If he uh, incited a riot and the woman was stoned, and then they could say he's guilty of treason and treason is worthy of death. Well, that was their plan. But the plan didn't work. Why didn't it work? Well, it didn't work because Jesus recognized and exploited the fact that these people weren't really concerned about justice concerning adulterous women. It was all a pretext. Had it Had they really been concerned about justice there would have been something else going on. They would have brought the man. Where's the man? This woman was caught in adultery in the very act, they say. And, under Mosaic law, no one could be uh, condemned and put to death unless there were two or three witnesses. So, presumably, there are two or three witnesses who have caught this woman in the act, and if they're witnesses, they, they know who the man is, but they haven't brought the man. The man's not there. And uh, that tells Jesus everything he needs to know. These people aren't really concerned with justice in this matter. And Jesus knows. He knows something about corrupt religious leaders. He knows that they are often given to sexual immorality. Israel has a long history of that. For example, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, during the time of the judges, uh, they slept with the women who served at the tabernacle. They were uh, corrupt religious leaders. There was Jeremiah uh, 23, verse 14. Uh, It says there, But in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Or again in Jeremiah 29 verse 23, speaking of the prophets, it says they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. They uh, spoke lies. They made up messages from God and they committed adultery with their neighbors' wives. That's the way false prophets act. And these scribes and Pharisees are uh, of that ilk. They are of that uh, uh, genre of uh, priests. They are corrupt. And it's very likely that they too are guilty of adultery. In fact, uh, they may know that this woman is guilty of adultery because they have uh, committed adultery with her. Uh, They claim to be eyewitnesses, but they make no mention of any guilty male. And so Jesus looks at them and says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, this is in accordance with Mosaic law when someone commits a capital crime under Moses' uh, laws, that, then it was required that the eyewitnesses, first of all, no one could be executed unless there were eyewitnesses, and there had to be at least two, better three, uh, two or three eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses were required when the verdict was uh, rendered, they had to be the first to throw the stones. Uh, they had to uh, sort of have the courage of their convictions, the courage of their testimony. You couldn't just go uh, to the trial and give your testimony against the accused. Yes, I saw the accused commit this crime that's worthy of death and then slink off uh, into the, the background and, and be forgotten about. You had to stick around and if the. Uh, the verdict was guilty as charged, then the eyewitnesses had to come forward and be the first ones to throw the stones. And under a system like that, it's important that the people who are throwing the stones are righteous. They, they have to be telling the truth and, and not themselves guilty of the same crime. You can imagine that maybe uh, three people conspire together to, uh, to murder their neighbor and steal his, uh, his gold. And then two of them say, uh, let's turn state's evidence and and, uh, condemn our brother uh, uh, criminal so that we only have to divide the loot two ways. We'll pretend to be innocent. Well, uh, that would uh, be a great perversion of justice in God's sight. Uh, The uh, the witnesses need to be uh, innocent and uh, righteous in their testimony and in their desire to see evil punished. And they prove that by. Being those who cast the first stone. Well, Jesus says, okay, if you're, if you are true eyewitnesses and are righteous, then you cast the first stone. Let him who is without guilt cast the first stone. And one by one, they begin to slink away. Why? Well, because they know that Jesus knows that they are guilty of the sin of adultery. Now, how do they know that Jesus knows? Well, there's this matter of Jesus' strange behavior on this occasion. They come and they bring this charge and make it, and Jesus doesn't respond verbally. But he does respond. He begins writing something in the sand. Something which not everybody in the crowd can see. The people who can see it are the people in the front row. The people who are making the charge. The people whom Jesus uh, will uh, challenge. Uh, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. They see what he's writing. What is he writing? Well, everybody wants to know. <laughs> you and I can't know for, for certain. But... I think we can make an educated guess that he wrote something that revealed to those who were making the accusation that he knew about them. He knew their secret sins. Maybe he was writing the names of some of the people they had committed adultery with uh maybe he was uh, writing down some dates uh, on which uh, they had committed adultery and uh, or places and and so forth or some other incriminating evidence that they would see him writing and be cut to the heart so that all their wind is knocked out of their sails and they are no longer anxious to bring a charge against this woman because they recognize that Jesus knows what only they think they know. He knows their secret sins. And, uh, so they go away. And the, uh, the attempt on Jesus' life uh, ends in a failure. They are not able to put him to death, uh, on their schedule. They will indeed put him to death but not on their schedule, on his schedule, when His he knows that his time is right. They could not and cannot push Jesus around and make him jump to their demands. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will, the will of his Father in heaven. Well, what can we learn from this? Well, we can see here an illustration of John 3:17, that Jesus came not to condemn, but to uh, call sinners to repentance and to offer his life uh, for them. We see how Jesus deals with sinners and he deals with sinners, first of all, by exposing their sin. He exposed the sin of the religious leaders, revealing their hypocrisy and shaming them. And he uh, he doesn't uh, uh, deny that this woman has committed adultery. He 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 deals with that when he says, "Go and sin no more." He acknowledges that she's a sinner. Uh, he he deals with their sin. He shows that he knows their sins. You know, we we ought to take this to heart because that means Jesus knows your sins as well, even your secret. Since he can see and he sees perfectly. Recently, uh, uh, somebody uh, brought to my attention a verse in uh, Revelation chapter 5 verse 6 of the uh, John's vision of the lamb that was slain who was uh, on the throne John uh, has this vision of heaven and he sees Jesus Christ as a lamb that was slain on the throne and the lamb is said to have seven horns and seven eyes and the seven eyes are identified as the seven spirits of God and uh, the number 7 there is a symbolic number representing the perfection and what it's telling us about Jesus is uh number one, he has uh, omnipotent strength. Seven horns uh, means he has omnipotent strength, perfect strength. Uh, the strength that comes from the Spirit of God, the sevenfold Spirit of God, the perfect Spirit of God. He has strength from that, but he also has seven eyes, which means he has perfect vision. And that perfect vision, those seven eyes, can look straight into you and see into the very depths of your heart and see what none of your neighbors can see and see the sin there, the sin that you are hiding there. You know, it's easy to see the sin of some people. There are drug addicts on Skid Row who... Uh, have needle marks on their arms and have a police record uh, a mile long of all the crimes that they have committed to try to support their habit. And they are dirty and unclean and unshaven and uh, a miserable sight to see. Their sin is evident to everybody. But then there are people like the man who was in the news today this past week uh, in the news because of his death, I believe at the age of eighty two in prison uh, bernie madoff i don 't know if you remember that name, but uh, a number of years ago he was he was a well respected man he was a man of uh, impeccable a reputation, a pe- man who everybody trusted. He wore uh, beautiful clothing. He lived in expensive housing. He drove expensive cars. He ate at the best restaurants. And uh, people admired him and respected him and trusted him. But he had a terribly wicked heart. The uh, judge who sentenced him to, I believe, 180 years in prison wished that he could punish him with a greater punishment than that because of the the wickedness that he had perpetrated on the lives of so many and the hurt that he had brought on the lives of so many. Many charities had invested their money in him. He had a Ponzi scheme. In case you don't know who Bernie Madoff is, he was an investor and uh, had a Ponzi scheme where he... uh, Used new money to pay off uh, old investors and uh, promised uh, returns on investments that nobody else could re- uh, give and uh, everybody thought why uh, oh, this is this is the way to make money you know and he took money even from charities, and uh, the trouble with Ponzi schemes is that though they work for a time, eventually they blow up, and his blew up and and uh, the evil and the wickedness of it uh, became evident and many people were hurt. Uh, but, you know, there are respectable people in the eyes of the world who are just as evil and wicked, perhaps even more so than those whose sins may be evident from their outward demeanor. We are all guilty in God's sight. His seven eyes can see into your soul. And sees your sin and Jesus deals with sinners by exposing their sin and enabling you to see your own sin. And then when he shows you your sin, he calls you to repentance. He told the woman, go and from now on, sin no more. And because she went away in faith, he said to her, neither do I condemn you. And we may wonder, How can Jesus let a guilty sinner go like that? He knows that she's guilty. Is it enough that that not sinning anymore will make up for all her past sins? No, that's not it at all. Jesus has come into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And he saves not by letting sins go unpunished, but by enduring the sinner's condemnation in place of the sinner. He knew that this woman deserved to be stoned to death. She, she needed to be put to death. And her sins would be paid for with death. Not her death. His death. And the same is true for you and me. If we look to Jesus as when He is lifted up on the cross, as the Israelites in the desert lift, lift looked up at that bronze serpent on the pole, when we look up to Jesus and we look to Him in faith, we see there the One who is suffering and dying in our place, paying for our sins so that we might be forgiven. And then Jesus says to you, go and sin no more. And by that He's saying, not Go and deserve what I've done for you, but go and show your thankfulness for the free gift of salvation that I have given to you. From now on, no longer live for yourself. From now on, no longer satisfy the evil desires of your heart and follow the wicked paths of this world. But now go forward in faith and gratitude and live a life of service to me. I've not come to condemn you, says Jesus. I went to the cross to pay for your sins so that you would not have to suffer for them. Now go and sin no more. He's telling you to strive to offer your life as a living sacrifice in gratitude for His undeserved mercies and love. If you know that you are a sinner, if Jesus has shown you your sin and you know that you are worthy of condemnation, then go forward in faith and in gratitude that He came not to condemn you, but to save you. By dying for you in your place. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture that so beautifully illustrates that Jesus came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And we pray that we might be saved through him, that we might look to him, look to him, lifted up on the cross, there suffering and dying to pay for our sins, that we may be forgiven. Help us to go forth in love and faith and gratitude to sin no more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.